Hi everyone, my name's Ella and this is The Crime Chick, a podcast discussing the most horrific of crimes. So welcome back if you listened to my last episode and if you're new here, thank you so, so much for joining us. So on today's episode, we'll be talking about the heartbreaking murder of James Bulger. So grab a glass of wine and make yourself comfy. It's going to get sinister. James Bulger was born on the 16th of March 1990 in Kirkby, England, to his loving parents, Ralph and Denise Bulger. They had both previously lost a daughter who was stillborn, but luckily James was a very happy and healthy child. He had big blue eyes and light brown hair and was described as a happy-go-lucky kid who was constantly smiling. But one day on a normal trip to the shops, just before James's third birthday, tragedy hits and the family is torn apart. On Friday the 12th of February 1993, Denise popped out with James to a shopping centre called Bootle Strand. And it's like any other normal day. She's out shopping with her son, running errands, and her last stop is at the butcher's. So she takes her eye off James for just a few seconds whilst placing her order. But in those seconds, James has gone missing. Now, Denise noticed almost immediately and ran out searching frantically for James, but she finds no sign of him. Security are called to try and locate him and Denise told them that James was wearing a blue anorak with a hood and silver tracksuit bottoms. But again, nothing, just like he had disappeared into thin air. So now the police are called. There's no sign of James. He's nearly three years old and everyone is worried. At 4pm, a young PC carried out a thorough search of the shopping centre and also attempting to comfort a now very frantic Denise. But again, nothing is found. It's now 5.30pm and the mall is now closing and Liverpool police finally launch a major search for James Bulger. As night falls, James has still not been found, nor has there been a single sighting of him. The police on the case and security staff at the shopping centre spend the night looking through CCTV footage. Now, I'm not entirely sure why they didn't have someone doing this sooner, and I feel like they may have tracked him down quicker had they immediately looked, but they did find something. In the footage, James can be seen leaving the butchers and almost immediately after, Denise is seen leaving to try and find him. But by this point, two-year-old James has made his way to the top floor of the shopping centre and seems to be following two young boys. One of them is holding James's hand and they seem to be going in the direction of the Liverpool Canal. This footage was the last ever recording of James. It's now Sunday, the 14th of February, and it's been two days since James went missing, and the police and family members have done everything in their power to locate him. Press conferences were called, patrol cars with loudspeakers were sent 
all around Liverpool and appeals were made for the two boys James was last seen with to come forward. But nothing happened. That is, until a young boy rushes into Walton Lane Police Station to tell the police that he has found a body on the train tracks less than 150 yards from the police station. The body was James Bolger and how they find James leaves the nation horrified. The police now have two young boys to track down and a horrendous murder to solve. After James has been found murdered, and we will get to what really happened very soon, the Liverpool community went crazy and the police still don't know who committed this awful crime. And all they have to go off is a grainy image of two young boys from CCTV. With the help of the public, they have hundreds of leads coming in. And on Tuesday, the 16th of February, they do arrest a young boy. And when locals find out about this, all hell breaks loose. All they can think about is how someone could commit such a crime and his family is terrorised. But the boy was found to have no connection to the crime whatsoever and due to these threats the family were forced to move house. So again they're stuck at a dead end, there is no other information to go off and the police are desperately asking these two boys to come forward and eventually there's a breakthrough. On the 18th of February 1993, after enhanced images of the CCTV footage were released, a woman very quickly came forward and said she recognised the boys, who she named as Robert Thompson and John Venables, who were both 10 years old. She claimed that she knew they regularly skipped school together. Police checked with their school and, would you know it, they were both absent the day of James's murder. The police instantly act on this information and unmarked cars were sent to arrest both of the boys. The investigating officers at the time, who were headed by Detective Superintendent Albert Kirby, were shocked at how young the boys really were, and they initially didn't believe that the youngsters they had arrested were capable of such an awful crime. So, Detective Kirby initially dismisses the boys as murderers, but he still wants to question them, as they were still believed to be the last people to have seen James. However, on the 22nd of February, both the boys appeared in court and were charged with the abduction and murder of James Bulger. But what did they do to the innocent two-year-old? How did he end up on those train tracks? And is it really possible for two 10-year-olds to commit such an awful crime? As we know, Robert and John were seen on CCTV leading James out of the shopping centre and going towards the canal. But what happened between then and the police finding James's body? Now, before I talk about the interviews and the trials of Robert and John, I am going to talk about the torture that they put James through. But I want to give a warning now that the description of what happened to James is very graphic, violent and disturbing. If this is going to trigger you, please skip forward or just make sure you are listening in a safe space with someone you trust. 
After leaving the shopping centre, Robert and John had taken James over two miles away to the Liverpool Canal where their ruthless attack started. They began kicking, stamping and throwing bricks and rocks at James and one of the boys took blue modelling paint that he had stolen earlier that day and put it in James's eyes and the other stuffed batteries in his mouth. Now, police have also said that they believe they forced batteries into his buttocks, but there is no physical evidence of this. They then carried on and dropped a 10 kilogram bar onto his head. And from this alone, he sustained a total of 10 skull fractures. And the pathologist, Alan Williams, states that James had suffered a total of 42 injuries, so many that they didn't know which one caused James to die. Robert and John then carried James to the train tracks, laid him across the tracks and weighted his head down with stones in order to make his death look like an accident. Not long after the 10-year-olds left, a train came by and James's body was severed in half. The pathologist has noted that James had died prior to being struck by the train and police also suspected that there could have been a sexual element to this crime as when James was found, his shoes, socks, trousers and pants had all been removed and his foreskin had been forcibly retracted. Now, I found that all extremely hard to describe and I'm sure you all would have found it hard to listen to as well. And when I first read about this case, it left me in absolute tears. And while I was preparing for this episode, I was debating whether or not to leave all those details out. But I think it's important to hear what really happened to James and to spread full awareness of the torture that he was put through by these two boys. Before I talk about the trials, I want to go over Robert and John's backgrounds as there are very prominent similarities in their upbringing and I feel it is important to discuss. Now, I want to make it very clear that I'm in no way excusing what these boys did. That being said, it is necessary to look into in order to be able to determine what could have led to these children murdering another child. As I'm sure you all know, environmental and psychological factors do play a huge role in how a person behaves, but did it play a role in the lives of Robert and John? Both Robert and John's parents had separated and both children had problems with attendance, learning and behaviour at school. They bunked off all the time, shoplifted and were known to be violent. Neighbours even informed the police that both the boys usually caused trouble. This included shooting pigeons' heads off with an air gun and catching and tying rabbits up in alleyways. There was also talk of them stealing charity collection boxes and assaulting other children in the classroom. Now, Robert was one of seven children and was raised by his mother Anne and his father. Himself, his mother and siblings were all said to have been subjected to physical and sexual violence by his father. He ended up leaving when Robert was five years old, but the violence continued as all the brothers turned on each other and Anne turned into an alcoholic. She regularly left her seven children home alone while she went to the local bar. 
John, however, suffered no violence at home and wasn't known to have been bullied at school. Rather, he was the bully. That being said, his mother Susan did suffer from severe psychiatric problems and John took the separation of his parents very poorly. Various researchers have also debated whether one or both of the boys was a psychopath. Now, psychopathy is a mental disorder that causes a person to act in immoral ways and includes an individual having impaired empathy and the lack of ability to feel love. This condition can be brought around mainly by DNA, but environmental factors also play a huge role. Now, comparing this information to the childhood of Robert, it does seem feasible that he was in fact a psychopath but again there is no evidence for or against this but it's important to cover all aspects of what could have caused the boys to act in the way they did especially at such a young age now that we have all of that information covered i'm going to finally talk you through the interviews and trials of robert and john so robert was interviewed on thursday the 18th of february this is the same day he was arrested and he was interviewed by detective constable bob jacobs with his mother anne present they first asked robert whether he understood the difference between telling the truth and a lie which he confirmed he did but during during the interview he lied multiple times and was said to have a bratty and rude demeanour. Now he did admit that him and John skipped school that Friday but he claimed that all he saw was James getting onto an escalator with his mum and then him and John left and went home. Now this should stand out to you because why would Robert just happen to notice seeing James and that was all? Think about all the hundreds of other mums and children at the shopping centre that day yet Robert claims to have just happened to notice James and his mum. At the same time John was having his interview with his mother Susan present and unlike Robert who maintained composure John was hysterical from the very start and he starts by telling the investigators how his day supposedly went. He claimed that they first went to the park they then went to a cemetery so Robert could steal some flowers and they then went to the shop and Robert stole blue paint. He initially denied being at the shopping centre at all that day so investigators told him that Robert had said they were there that day to which John finally admitted they were there. But he then said, and I quote, we never saw any kids there. We never robbed any kids. We never got a kid we never end quote now during a break both investigative teams spoke john had said that he was with robert but would not admit to going to the strand and upon commencing the interviews the detective asked robert why he thought john would lie about being at the strand and robert responded that he thought john maybe did do something bad he then admitted that they were with James and he was holding John's hand, but he was adamant they were only walking him to the nearby church and then they left him there. And as the first day of interviews came to a close, they informed Robert he couldn't go home and had to be detained, to which he responded, why do I have to stay? 
John's the one who took the baby and he then further admitted that they had taken James to the railway but he said he left John and James there after John threw paint in the two-year-old's eyes. The next morning rolls around and they have another full day of interviews. Now, in Robert's next interview, he describes John in an out-of-control killing frenzy. He claimed that John threw bricks at the baby and then hit him with a big metal thing with holes in it. He then claims that John hit James with a stick and that James was laying there very still with his eyes open across the track. Now he then claims that John had the batteries and threw one of them at James's face and all this time Robert was supposedly trying to pull John away and screaming at him to stop. Now the detectives are astounded by this and they ask him why they think John did all of this but Robert didn't know. All he said was, and I quote, I only pinched James. So investigators take this information and confronted John with it. And when they did, he screamed over and over, I haven't touched a boy. And he then said, I never killed him. Mum, mum, we took him and left him at the canal. That's all, end quote. But at this point, investigators can see that John is very close to the breaking point. And once they urge him to tell the truth and let him know that his mum will still love him, he finally cracks. Jumping into his mother's lap, he said, I did kill him. Will you tell his mum I'm so sorry? So now they have John's confession and that is all they need to convict him but they still need to figure out what part Robert played in this brutal murder. They were certain he wasn't going to confess, so they asked John, and John confessed that he walked towards the baby and took him by the hand, but it was Robert's idea to kill him. Now, Robert's version of events are very different to John's, and according to John, it was Robert who threw the blue paint in James's face, And to this, James began to cry and Robert asked him, is your head hurting? We'll get a plaster on. He then lifted a brick and threw it at James's head. James screamed and fell back, but got back up again. And John said at one point he was trying to pull Robert back, but Robert wasn't listening. He then said that Robert was shouting and calling James bad names and then hit him with an iron bar he said that to this James fell onto his stomach on the tracks and both boys ran John then claimed he said to Robert don't you think we've done enough now now at this point both of the boys are trying to pin the murder on one another but the investigators knew they had enough information to be able to prosecute the boys and concluded the interviews it was now time for the trials As you'll hopefully remember from earlier, John and Robert appeared before the South Sefton Magistrates Court in Bootle on the 22nd of February, where near on 500 protesters gathered outside. Now, they did both plead not 
guilty and they were remanded in custody to await trial. But upon the public hearing this, huge riots broke out outside the court and due to this, the trial was relocated to Preston and begun on the 1st of November at Preston Crown Court. And this is nine months after James's murder. Now, as John and Robert are minors, their identities are required to be hidden. So during the trial, they were referred to as Child A and Child B. As well as this, an injunction was preventing the press from releasing any information about them. But despite them being minors, they were still tried as adults. At the beginning of the trial, the prosecution made it very clear to the jury that they didn't need to rely on Robert and John's version of events. Now, this is because they have a lot of witnesses, and the first witness is Malcolm Walton. Now, he stated he saw the boys with James near the canal, and another witness, Irene Hitman, also saw the same. But as well as this, she said it looked like James had large lumps over his head and he looked distressed. She said that she even told John and Robert to take James home, but they refused. And I'm unsure as to why they didn't call this in in the first place, but the witnesses have all said that they do blame themselves for not doing anything and they weren't to know what was going to happen. Now, at this point, they move on to forensic evidence and this is vital. And luckily for the investigators, they have more than enough. Graham Jackson, a home office forensic scientist, matched blood samples from James to the blood found on John's shoe. And there was only a one in a billion chance of it being an error, which makes this very strong evidence. Philip Rydid, another forensic scientist, was also able to match the pattern of bruising on James's right cheek with features of the upper part of a shoe that was worn by Robert. They were black brogues that had a very distinctive stitching and an unusual arrangement of lacing rings. Light blue paint marks were also discovered on James's anorak hair, shoes and underpants and this same light blue paint was found on Robert and John's clothing including their jackets, trousers and shoes. Andy Mully, another forensic and scientist, also pointed out to the jury that a paint mark on John's sleeves might well have been James's handprint. After hearing three weeks worth of evidence, the jury were finally asked to deliver their verdict. And on the 24th of November, 1993, after only taking just six hours, the jury found both of the boys guilty and Justice Moreland sentenced them to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure for a minimum of eight years. And before passing sentence, Mr Justice Moreland stated that, and I quote, Robert Thompson and John Venables, the killing of James Bulger was an act of unparalleled evil and barbarity. But what happened after and where are they now? 
Well, on the 22nd of June 2001, having served their eight years, both John and Robert, now 18 years old, were released on a lifelong license. Both of them are given new identities and moved to different parts of the country to maintain their safety, and an injunction prevented the press from publishing any details about the two killers. On the 23rd of July 2010, John, who is now 27 at this point, is jailed once again after admitting to downloading and distributing indecent images of children. Now, he's denied parole on the 27th of July 2011 and the parole board recommended his release in 2013. However, in 2017, he was arrested once again for possessing child abuse images and he was sentenced to 40 months behind bars in February 18, almost 25 years to the day after he murdered James. Now, Robert, on the other hand, has kept a very low profile since his release in 2001, and his new identity is protected by an unprecedented injunction. Now, this applies around the world, and it means that even searching for his address could lead to a prison sentence. Now, many people, including myself, are shocked and just disgusted that they were given new identities, and I feel they were let off far too easy. Now, as of today, John is still serving his time in prison and Robert is said to have a boyfriend who also knows about his murderous past. Now, to this day, the fight for justice for James is still ongoing and his parents are still pleading for John and Robert's identities to be released, but nothing as of yet has been done. If you would like to learn more about this case, over on my website, thecrimechick.co.uk, there will be photos, links to other resources, as well as links to different documentaries about the case. And I would love to hear what you think of it. Can the parents be to blame for their son's actions? Did their tough upbringings really cause them to commit this terrible crime? Or maybe you think they were simply born murderous. Let me know either on my website or on Instagram at The Crime Chick. And as always, thank you so, so much for listening. I know it was quite a tricky one today. Well, it was for me anyway. And I appreciate every single one of you. And keep your eyes peeled for another horrendous case on next week's episode.